Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's reading is from Ezra chapter 1. It's verses 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord God, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, If you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 1, and while you're unsticking the pages, um, I want to start with a story, Um, and actually I'm going to start with uh, our story, the story of us, and uh, the reason I'm doing this is because Ezra Nehemiah, we're about to go through uh, a sermon series on Ezra Nehemiah, and it's a story, and stories have a way of identifying people, right? Like typically when, if you meet somebody for the first time, you tell them your name. Hi, I'm Parker. And then you typically say, oh, what do you do for a living? What do you do for work? And you tell them that. And then odds are there's a story that follows that. Oh, when I was in college, I studied this and did that and that. Oh, how'd you get into that business? How'd you become an a engineer? Oh, well, I did this. And how'd you get this job opportunity? I, you know, this popped up for me and I took the job and then it led to this. Or um, we, 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 we tell stories about ourselves to let people know who we are, right? We just identify ourselves that way. And we also can share stories like with somebody else, with another person. So like if you're in a, uh, in a class and there's a teacher who's just annoying and the class is super, super hard, you, you and your classmates or you and a friend when you're like studying for finals or you're complaining about the teacher or whatever, you share that same story together and then a bond is formed with you and that person. Oh, we went through the same thing together. We shared the same experience. We have this same story together. Spouses, husbands, wives. I mean, but the more you are married, the more you parent, the more you, life you go through, you share almost all of the same stories together and a bond is formed. Then it can extend even more, not just to one person, not just to a couple people, but can also start uh, reach a group of people. When a group of people shares a story together, that has a way to identify them. That has a way to form a bond with them, with, the, with an entire group of people. And if that story transcends time, it transcends location, it transcends generations, it transcends race, ethnicity, nationality, it transcends all of those things, then what the Bible says is it's not just like a bond that's formed, but it's a bond so strong that it's actually we are now family together because we share the same story. And there's only one story that does that. And it's the story of the faithful love of God for his people through faith in Christ Jesus 
as revealed in the scriptures. That's the single story that identifies me, identifies you if you are in Christ, and identifies us as a church with thousands of people before, thousands of people today, and thousands of people yet to come. There's one story that does that. And that's the story we're going to look at today, and that's the story that Ezra Nehemiah is, is in. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God and his love for his people. And uh, for better or for worse, a lot of people say that you know, nobody remembers sermons, they remember stories, which is just really humbling for me because I just spend all these hours trying to prepare for sermons and you guys, but I won't, I won't remember them either, that's okay. But they rem people remember stories, right? You don't remember a sentence or a point or a bullet point, but remember stories. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to situate the story of Ezra and Nehemiah in the story of God's faithful love for his people. And we're going to see how that story is actually our story today. Ezra Nehemiah is actually one book. I know it's two books in our Bible, but originally it was one volume. So this summer we're going to be taking our time through the, books of, the book of Ezra Nehemiah um, together. And Ezra Nehemiah is interesting because when you start it, it starts with a decree from a foreign King Cyrus of Persia, and then it ends unfinished. It literally ends with like a dot, dot, dot. So it starts in the middle of a story, and it ends too early. The story doesn't actually finish. It would be the equivalent of walking to, you know, B&B theater right here, walking into a movie 30 minutes late, watching an hour of it, and then leaving 30 minutes early. That's the equivalent of, what, like, if you just sat down and you read Ezra Nehemiah, you'd be like, what? I, I'm missing something here. Like, what's, what's going on? Because clearly I came in late to the movie, and clearly I left early because this is not... This is not finished. And over and over again, while we're going to be spending time in Ezra Nehemiah, we're going to see that it kind of has this, like, this, this almost buildup, this tension. That's what I'm looking for. This tension in it where it's like, oh, this is a great story, but there's a lot before and there's a, a lot to come after. At the beginning of each sermon series as well, what we're going to do is we're going to take the first sermon and we're just going to give an overview of the book. So today we're not going to specifically be in any verse per se, but we are going to sit, we're going to be talking about Ezra Nehemiah, we're going to be talking about Ezra Nehemiah and the, the larger story, and then next week we'll start in Ezra 1-1 and go from there. So just for those of you who are like type A and want to know where we're going, and like if I don't get to a verse yet, you're like, what, what's happening, what's happening, that's for you. I'm that person too, so just be, be comforted. But I want to pray, and I want to uh, tell this story, look at Ezra Nehemiah a little bit, and then show how um, it's actually about Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that <clears throat> your word does not return void. Um, we're thankful, Lord, that you, you write our story. You have written our story. You wrote it before we were even around. You're currently writing our story, Lord. N none of us are in here by accident. And, uh, Lord, you, hold our, you, you go before us. You've already written out our story. So, Father, give us faith to live. Give us faith to, to take one step each and every day. Show us how your word actually uh, is about you and your word is comforting. And your story that you have written, that we're going to look at today, your story is one that gives us life, it gives us hope, it gives us peace. Father, make yourself bigger in our lives, in our minds in our hearts. 
we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Our story starts out very simply. In the beginning, God created the skies, the heavens, and the land, the earth. And this is how our story begins, with an all-powerful, all-loving, creating God who creates out of chaos. He creates light out of darkness. He creates order out of chaos, and ultimately he creates life out of death. There was no life, and then he creates life with his word. He forms land out of the land. He forms creatures, animals. There's birds in the skies. There's fish in the sea. There's creatures on the land. And then he forms the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. It's Adam and it's Eve. They're not like the angels. They're not just spiritual. They're not like the animals. They're not just flesh and material. They are in the image of God, both, both, both human and, and divine in a way. And in this uh, creation that God has with his people, it's perfect. It's in the Garden of Eden, right? And there are three things that are true about the Garden of Eden. The first is that God's presence is there. God's presence is there in the Garden of Eden. God walks, you know, it says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of him walking. Well, how can you hear the sound of somebody walking if you haven't walked with them before and you know what the sound of them walking is? So his presence is there. He's with them. He talks to them. He walks with them. He lives with them. Second thing that's true of the Garden of Eden is that God's word is there. What created everything? The word. Then God said, let there be, and it was so. God gave them a command. His word was the foundation of their community. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Basically what he's saying is, hey, this earth is yours and mine. Let's go for it, you know? Let's make families, let's make art, let's make sport, let's make cities. Like this is the ideal Garden of Eden scenario where God and humans are together and they're fulfilling God's purpose. And then the third thing that's true is that it's God's place. There's a specific place, it was the Garden of Eden. And uh, there was a place outside of the Garden of Eden. That was wilderness, that was chaos. So in the Garden of Eden, in in this beginning of our story, we know that these three things are true. There's God's presence with his people. God's word is the foundation of their lives. And they have a specific, they have a home, basically. They have a specific place where they know where they're at. They know they're where they shouldn't go, right? And all of this, this paradise, right, it lasts for, you know, not long at all two chapters in my Bible, and then chapter three comes, and what happens is that Adam and Eve are deceived by sin, and what happens then is that they decide, they don't trust God's word, they go outside of God's presence, and they decide to take matters into their own hands, and they sin, and all of those things are immediately broken. They are, they are no longer able to be in the presence of God. God cannot be in the presence of sin. God, they broke God's word. God's word was the foundation of, of their, their lives, and they broke God's word. And then God's place, ultimately, they lost that too. They were banished from the garden east of Eden. They were guarded, and the Garden of Eden was guarded by, um, you know, angels with like flaming swords. So in an instant, they lost God's presence, they lost God's um, uh, word, and they, they broke God's word, and they lost their place in God. And so then generations go by, right? Adam and Eve have kids, their kids have kids, their kids have kids, and what happens is that this sin cycle, the cycle of, of taking matters into their own hands, it ends up resulting in, a lo- in, in terrible, terrible destruction. 
I mean, humans are just basically uh, uh, killing themselves. There's murder, there's rape, there's incest, there's violence, there's adultery, there's bloodshed, there's fear, there's all of these things. And it says in chap- Genesis chapter 9 that God is actually saddened by this because God doesn't want humans. God does not want his people to live like this. The ideal is, is God with his people surround, uh, standing on his word in his place, and God is saddened by this. So what does he do? He decides to choose one person in and through whom God's presence, God's word, God's place, God's blessing would go to all of the people. And that person is Abraham. Chooses Abraham, and what does he say? I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will give you the land, the place, the promised land. So Abraham walks by faith. He trusts God. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob is the father of 12 different sons by, 12, uh, by four women, not by 12 women. It's already weird enough. That would be even weirder. Uh, Jacob's the father of 12 sons by four different uh, women. And those 12 sons, eventually they start their own families. They grow, they grow, they grow. They turn out to be the 12 tribes of Israel. So now we're talking not just a few families. We're talking like a nation here. And through a series of events, they actually find their way in Egypt. And eventually, in Egypt, they get enslaved. They, they originally had a good relationship with Egypt, but then they, they get enslaved because the, all the people who were friends died. And so the new pharaoh basically says, hey, there's this group of people. They're not Egyptian. They're not us. And there's a lot of them. So let's take advantage of them and make them do all our work for us. And so they enslaved the Israelites. Over 400 years, these Israelites were enslaved. They were beaten, they were mistreated, and they were not with God in his presence. They, they were not standing on God's word, and they were not in his place, and they were crying out to God. They were crying out to God. God, did you forget us? Remember, remember Genesis 1 and 2? Remember your promise with Abraham? Did you forget us? God hears their cry, it says in Exodus, and he appoints a leader in and through whom God will bring about his blessing to all of the people with God's presence, God's word, and God's place. And that person is Moses. He leads them out mightily through the strong, powerful acts of God, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. In the wilderness, we see hints of God's presence. We see hints of God's word, and we see hints of God's place. God's presence, if you remember, it leads them every day um, and it leads them in daytime by a pillar of cloud. That's God's presence. And it leads them at nighttime by a pillar of fire. That was the presence of God. They could see it. There it is. And so they built this little tent to, you know, kind of put the presence there. And it's called the tabernacle. They built this tabernacle. That's, that's where God is. That is God's presence. They, they, they kind of centered, centered around God's word. Moses, as you know, went up on Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets this word. And they, they try to use God's word as the center of their community, as their faith. And then their place, they, they know that that's where they're going. So they know it's coming. It's not here yet, but the promised land, that's the place. That's got the, pl- the promised land, that's where we're going. Over and over again, we see what? These sin cycles where Israel rebels against God. They worship foreign gods. God hands them over to their own consequences. They repent, they cry out. God hears their cry, he saves them. They sin, God hands them over. They repent, he saves them. Over and over and over again. 40 years, they're in the wilderness. Eventually, God remembers his promise, and he leads them into the promised land. Now they are finally, they, they could have it all right here. They could have God's presence. They could be centered around God's word. They could be in the place, in the promised land. 
Joshua, you know, and um, the judges, they kind of set up their, diff- their like, land, their boundaries. They kind of, all the 12 tribes, they scatter across the land of Israel. They're populating, inhabiting the land. And eventually they set up a, a monarchy. There wasn't good that there were just a bunch of judges. They wanted a king. So the first king is King David. And David, as you know, he was a military ruler. And he really solidified the boundaries of God's place. This is Israel. Everybody knew where Israel was and where Israel wasn't at that point, finally. So he really solidified God's place. Um, the, the priesthood, the Levitical system, was finally solidifying God's word. They were finally surrounded on and built upon the community of God's word. But uh, God's presence was still in a tiny tent. Remember in the wilderness, they built a tent. And they're like, that's where God's presence is. Well, even, even when David built this magnificent palace, God was still in a little tiny tent. So David's um, uh, successor, his son Solomon, Solomon takes the place and Solomon's looking around and he's like, I live in this extravagant palace and God is over there in a tent. We need to, we need to fix that. So Solomon and all his you know, entrepreneurial skills and building skills, he gets all of these resources. The, the finest you know, cedars of Lebanon, gold from way down south in like the Saudi Arabia area, he gets all of these things and he builds this beautiful temple. I mean, it is the pinnacle of architecture, of, of, of power, of valor, of all of these things. And it says in First in Kings, Solomon, he builds a temple, and then he prays to dedicate it, and the presence of the Lord falls on the temple. The foundations of the temple quake. There's smoke, there's fire, similar to the presence of the Lord earlier. There's lightning, there's thunder, and everybody is just worshiping. This is it. This is the Garden of Eden. God's presence is there. They're centered around God's word, and they finally have a place. And yet, it still doesn't work. Their hearts are still hardened. They have an external law, not one that's written on their hearts. They, have to, they see God's presence, but they have to, to go there. God's presence is still limited. It's not everywhere. And even though they have a place, it says in the scriptures that they're starting to marry foreign women and have foreign children. And so all these different foreign gods are entering. And so these boundaries are kind of getting muddy. And what happens is God starts then speaking through these people called prophets to basically say, hey, guys, come on. The prophets warn the people of Israel. They chastise the people of Israel. They eventually they say that if if you do not turn Turn from your ways. If you do not repent, another nation is going to come in and stomp you guys out. They're going to be handed over to their own destruction. And that's exactly what happened, right? Israel goes through a, a civil war, and they divide into two countries, Israel and Judah, as if it wasn't complicated enough. There's so many Israels, so many Judahs, you know, which one's which. There's two countries now, Israel and Judah, and eventually exactly what the prophets said about destruction happened. Assyria comes in. They take out the northern tribe of Israel and they scatter these people across the nations. The people are not there. They're away from God's presence. They don't have a place. They have no law, no priests, no Levites telling them what the word of the Lord is. And eventually the ultimate destruction comes a couple generations later when this new empire rises up, Babylon. And Babylon's MO, the way they did things was we're gonna conquer everybody and when we do, just so that they don't rebel, we're gonna scatter Uh, if we conquer a region or a country, we're going to scatter them everywhere and we're going to destroy the most important thing that they have. Babylon did this to everybody. Babylon comes into Judah 
which is where Jerusalem is, which is where the palace is, which is where the temple is. And they take out waves and waves of Israelites, and they send them to the north, they send them to the south, they send them to the east, they send them and they scatter them everywhere. And then just to, to shove it in their face, they go in to the temple, they defile the temple, they break the Ark of the Covenant, they walk right into the Holy of Holies, and they burn the temple to the ground. No more. So now, because of Israel's sin, they, they do not have God's presence. There is no temple. There, where is God's presence? There is no word. They, don't, they can't go to church, right? They can't go to the synagogue. They can't listen to the Levites and the priests and all. They can't offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. Could you imagine the guilt you would feel if you knew that you could not ask for forgiveness? And they don't have a place. They are, they are homeless again. They are exiles. They are refugees in a foreign country where they don't know the language. They don't know the, the economy. They don't know the culture. They don't know anything. This is where God's people are. Eventually, by the word of Jeremiah, God prophesies that this is not going to last forever. The fact that they're scattered everywhere, they don't have God's presence, they don't have God's word, they're not in God's place, it's not going to last forever. Eventually, people will come back and then we'll set, they'll set up the kingdom. Then they'll be back in the Garden of Eden. So, like all countries and nations and world powers, Babylon eventually gets weak. Excuse me. <clears throat> Babylon eventually gets weak, and this new nation starts to rumble and rise, and it's the nation of Persia. And there's a guy by the name of King Cyrus who is Persian, and he's ruling, and he's conquering, and eventually they, they you know, uh, Persia conquers Babylon completely. So now Babylon is no more, right? This could be good news, could not be. Well, it is good news because King Cyrus and what the Persians did is rather than saying, let's take a country and a people group and scatter them everywhere, Let's actually give these people back their land. Let's give them back their religion. Let's give them back their culture, their money, their whatever. We'll just tax them super heavily so that they know that we're still, you know, in charge, which it's crass, but it's true. That's exactly what they did. And so, so then you get this, this Persian king named Cyrus, and he says to all of the different people groups that there are, go back home, build up your city again, build up your religious sites, and do that. And by the way, pray for your gods for me. But do that, and I'm going to tax you just so that I know, you know that I'm in charge. And he says that. This is exactly where Ezra 1.1 begins. There's this edict that goes out by King Cyrus of Persia. And he says, hey, there's a people group here, the Israelites. They're from Judah in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their holy place. I'm going to send you guys back to Judah. I'm going to let you rebuild your, it says the house of God. It's the temple. I'm going to let you rebuild that. You were under foreign oppression, and now I'm actually going to send you back and let you have your own place back and do your own thing. So if you're an Israelite and you hear that, what are you thinking? Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, we could, we could go back. We could have God's, we, if we rebuild the temple, we could have God's presence again. If we, if we bring about church and synagogue and the sacrificial system, we could be centered around God's Word, if we actually have our home and we figure out the boundaries of where we live, we could actually be in God's place again. Maybe this time it could work. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are this moment in history, of, in the story. 
And there's a few diff- main sections of Ezra and Nehemiah that we're going to be going through today. The first is, or not today, <laughs> lucky for you, we could go through the whole sermon series in one hour. Uh, this summer is what I meant to say. We're going to go through Ezra and Nehemiah this summer. And the first section is the first couple chapters, and each, um, each section has a main character and then something that they're rebuilding. So in Ezra chapter 1 through 6, the main character is this guy named Zerubbabel, which is just an awesome name. If you're, you know, thinking about naming your firstborn son, you should really consider Zerubbabel at the top of the list. Uh, this, this, this guy named Zerubbabel. And in the first section, chapters 1 through 6, they rebuild the temple. The temple is where God's presence was. Our hopes are high. This could be it. Zerubbabel goes, he gets all these people, there's a little bit of oppression from foreign people, they're like, no, don't do it, and they're like, no, we're going to do it anyway. So they build the temple, and they have the temple. The next section is Ezra 7 through 10. The main character in Ezra 7 through 10 is Ezra, and he is a a person of the law, of the word of God. He's a a teacher of of the law. And what he does is he centers the people around the word of God. There's a story that we're going to be talking about where um, he, he literally reads the law of Moses. He reads the first five books of the Old Testament. And the people are weeping. And they're rejoicing. And they're repenting. And it looks as though that they will finally center themselves around God's word. God's presence, God's word. The third section of Ezra, Nehemiah, is Nehemiah chapters 1 through Seven. And the main character, the leader of this time, is a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And he goes, and what does he do? You probably maybe have heard stories of Nehemiah. He goes and he rebuilds the walls, right? He goes and he goes to this gate and he goes to that gate and he rebuilds all these walls. And um, basically what it is is he's rebuilding God's place. They're finally going to have a home again. This could be it. And it's not. Spoiler alert, it's not. The end of Ezra and Nehemiah ends with two different sections. The first is Nehemiah 8 through 12, where they actually literally sign a document. We won't be like our fathers who went before us, who rebelled against God, who had a hard heart. We won't be like them. This time we mean it. This time we mean it. We're going to be true. We're going to try harder. And Nehemiah 13 ends in a giant failure. Absolute letdown. And then it the, the book is over. That's it. It's done. They didn't, they, they, they didn't stay true to God's presence. They didn't stay true to God's word. And they defiled the walls. They broke down the walls again. They cannot, despite all of their efforts in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they cannot bring about God's movement. They cannot bring about a move of God. They cannot bring about the presence of God on their own human efforts. Our story doesn't end there, though. This is where the, the Old Testament ends, and then it just is, is dark and silent for 400 years. Our story doesn't end there, though. Because think about, um, well, let me say this. One thing about Ezra and Nehemiah is that it's, it's difficult to see, um, since it's our story, sometimes it's difficult to see Jesus in an Old Testament passage, right? It's like, okay, I, I know this is about God and Jesus, but, but how? How is it about that? And I had a, a teacher once say to me that uh, the Bible kind of is like, um, it functions similar to, similarly to the Chronicles of Narnia. So any of you guys ever read C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, those children's books, right? There's, there's seven books 
uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And the main character, obviously, is this lion named Aslan, right? Now, Aslan is not on every single page of all of the Chronicles. Of, the name Aslan is not on every single page in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not even in every single story. There are some stories that don't have, As there are some books almost that are almost completely entirely silent on Aslan. Then there are some that are just like, wow, you know, when he, when he, um, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he is sacrificed and he atones for their sins. Like, that's, that's clearly like Aslan is the main character, but not every story, not every page has Aslan in it. The Old Testament is similar. Jesus is not in Ezra and Nehemiah, but Ezra and Nehemiah is about Jesus. There's two, two temptations to fall on. Jesus is either nowhere in the Old Testament or he's everywhere in the Old Testament, you know? And we're not going to do the one where it's like, oh, there's the sheep gate and there's the water gate and he's rebuilding this temple and Jesus is kind of like the water and the sheep gate. So Jesus, the gate, is he the... That's not, that's not what's happening here. But this story, Ezra and Nehemiah, it is about Jesus. Think about this. Ezra and Nehemiah is trying to bring about this heaven on earth, this paradise, this God finally, God's presence, God's word, and God's place. So what did the scriptures say Jesus is? Jesus is God's presence. Jesus is the word of God that became flesh. Jesus is the place where you do not longer have to, uh, to go to this mountain and worship. You can actually worship in spirit and in truth. The, Jesus is the one that fulfills the, the, the unexciting ending and the unconcluded ending of Ezra and Nehemiah. Where finally, finally, it is no longer on human efforts that we have to try to bring about God's presence, try to finally like say, I promise God this time I'll do this, I'll do better, I'll do better. It is Jesus who is the one that does all that. And this is why at the beginning I said this is our story too. Because think about this, for us, when we say Jesus is Lord, when we believe, when we put our faith in Jesus, where does God's presence then reside? The same spirit that lives, that rose Jesus from the dead, now lives in you. We have God's presence. What about God's word? The Old Testament, it was written, you had to go somewhere to read it. What the prophets say is that it is now what Jesus said is that the word is now actually written on our hearts. The law is written on our hearts. What these people in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, tried so hard to center their lives around. Now, we can forget it. We can sin. We can plug our ears to the Holy Spirit. But the word is written in our hearts. And then finally, what does Paul say about our place, God's place? We don't actually live, we're not citizens of this country. We are longing for and living as citizens of a heavenly country where its foundations are not built on earth. And so over and over again, we are going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah that, that it's very frustrating. We're gonna get frustrated with these people. Come on, do you not get it? Do you not get it? You really think that by trying hard, you're gonna be able to bring about a move of God? But I think before we even, uh, before we point the finger, we need to remember, how many times have I done that? How many times have, when, I, when I've sinned, or when I've walked away from God, or when I've forgotten the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in me. I try by my own might to bring about God's presence, to live according to God's word, 
to basically try to live in a paradise here on earth. Well, I know that sin still has a heart. This is why Paul talks about in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do, right? It is a conflict. It is a battle. But this is our story. And unlike Ezra and Nehemiah, we, look to the one, we don't look to a literal physical location. We don't look to a physical building. We don't look to pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We look to Jesus. Because it's in and through him that all of the promises, all of the fulfillments that Ezra and Nehemiah really tried to get a hold of come to fruition. And so throughout this series, um, we, it's imperative we remember that Ezra and Nehemiah is a part of that larger story, and that larger story is our story. It's our story today in our own individual lives, and it's our story because we can look back and say, this is what, this is what the, the, the heralds of our faith today, this is what they went through. This is how they thought God forgot them. God overlooked them. And yet this is how God delivered them and his faithful love of his people. So a few questions I have today is this, what, what does this make you think about God? Seeing this, this pattern of sin, destruction, repentance, forgiveness. What does it make you think about who God is? Second is, what does this make you think about yourself as a human? Maybe you see, your, maybe you see a pattern in your life that you see in Israel's life. And then finally, is this, your, is this story of God's faithful love for, you, for his people, but even more specifically for you, God's faithful love for you, is that your story? Is your story the one of redemption? Is your story the one of surrender? I can't do this on my own, Lord. I cannot, I cannot atone for my sins. I cannot be better on my own. Is this your story? And so I want to take a few minutes and just let you uh, think about those three questions. What, is it, what does this make you think about God? What does this make you think about yourself? And then, is this your story? And after a few minutes of, of thinking and, and contemplating that, I'm going to have you guys, after I'm done praying, actually, I'm going to have you guys come up and take uh, communion, take the elements with you back to your, back to your seats, and um, we'll, we'll observe communion together, remembering that while we will be let down a lot in Ezra and Nehemiah, it is, it is in Jesus that we won't be. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, that everything, um, everything is about you. Everything is about your son. Everything is about your, uh, your life here on earth, Lord. So please, please do not let us forget that. Father, as we take the, um, the elements, I ask that you would bring to mind Areas where we need to repent, areas where we need to believe, areas where we need to have hope and we need to have joy and we need to have thanksgiving because, of, because you, you never, ever, ever forsake your people. You are faithful to the end. Thank you so much for that. We love you and we pray all these things in your son's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at 
Or you can find us on social media at Inkening Gospel. Thank you.